Hello, I'm Maya Nowens, Senior Fellow for Chinese Security and Defense Policy at the WSS and host of the Sound Strategic Podcast. We're just days away from the 20th WSS Shangri-La Dialogue, which will be held from 2 to 4 June in Singapore. For those of our audience who aren't already familiar with it, the Shangri-La Dialogue is the Asia-Pacific's premier defense summit, where defense ministers and policymakers from across the Asia-Pacific and beyond gather annually to discuss the region's most pressing security challenges. In today's episode, I'm joined by four WSS colleagues from our offices in Singapore and Berlin to get their takes on what issues are likely to be discussed at the dialogue this year. We'll cover how Europe views Indo-Pacific security against the backdrop of the second year of Russia's illegal war of aggression against Ukraine, the ongoing conflict in Myanmar, and how that might be discussed by delegates during the dialogue, what's likely to be raised by Australian Prime Minister Albanese in his keynote address, and of course, whether or not the U.S. and Chinese defense ministers will find a way to have their all-important bilateral meeting along the sidelines of the main event. Joining me to discuss these topics, as well as what our experts think you should watch out for over the course of the three-day-long dialogue are James Crabtree, Executive Director of the WSS Asia Office, Dr. Lynn Kwok, Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow and Editor of the WSS Asia-Pacific Regional Security Assessment, Aaron Connolly, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asian Politics and Foreign Policy, and Dr. Ben Schreer, Executive Director of the WSS Europe Office. James, Lynn, Aaron, and Ben, welcome onto the show. James, let's start with you. We're heading into the 20th Shangri-La Dialogue. What do you think are the big themes this year? I mean, imagine there's lots to be discussed in terms of major geopolitical developments from the U.S. and China's relationship to the G7 and economic security tools. The second anniversary of the war in Ukraine, of course, is passed. So what do you expect the mute music to be like at this year's dialogue and what, what's going to be discussed? I think the main focus in this year, as in almost every year, is the bilateral relationship between the United States and China. Uh, there, the mood music is not particularly positive. The relationship has been on a downward trajectory since last year's dialogue. However, there have been a few tentative rays of light in, in recent weeks, a few successful meetings between the US and Chinese side, for instance, um, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, meeting with Wang Yi and talk of a few other meetings. We await to see whether the US and Chinese side will meet at the dialogue itself. But I think that will be the main area of focus. And the, the real question the region is asking is, is there any way that these two countries can pull out of what appears to be a, a downward spiral in bilateral relations, where even if from time to time there are some upward ticks, as for instance, when the two presidents meet, what else can be done to stabilize the poor and deteriorating relations between the two sides? I think that's what most people will be looking for. I mean, you're right. The big question is, of course, whether the newly appointed Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu and U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin will meet. Can we confirm to our listeners that both are attending? And what's your gut instinct about the possibility of a meeting? We've heard and read various reports in the news about the potential for the CATSA restrictions on Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu possibly going to be lifted or not by the U.S. administration, which apparently the Chinese have made a prerequisite for a bilateral meeting. How likely is all of this and how important are these high-level meetings on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue? Yes, yeah, so I think for our readers, it's worth noting, in a sense, take a step back and say, well, what is the Shangri-La Dialogue? So if you walk into the Shangri-La Hotel in eight days' time from when we're recording this, you'll see 
many hundreds and thousands of military officials and senior security leaders, including a number from the United States and China. And so you have both the plenary program, which we put together, where lots of defense ministers speak, uh, including by tradition, the ministers from the United States and from China. But there are also a range of bilateral meetings that are happening in private behind the scenes on the floor above. And so the question you're asking, will the Chinese and the Americans meet? We don't know the answer to that yet. By convention, they do. There have been some news reporting that, as you say, this time, maybe they won't. I mean, I think the only answer we can say is wait and see. I think there are reasons to be moderately hopeful about this. So on the the skeptical side, as the report that you mentioned in the Financial Times last week noted, because the new Chinese defense minister, Li Shangfu, has these American sanctions against him, the Chinese side has indicated in private. So the report suggests that this is a barrier for them, that they feel it would not be appropriate to meet while their minister is under sanction. However, both sides, the United States and China, will want to come to the region, to Singapore and to Southeast Asia, and be seen to be making best efforts to be cooperative with one another. They walk into a region which is growing increasingly nervous about the behavior of both sides of the great power competition dynamic. They're worried that China is quite assertive in their own backyard. They're worried that America is increasingly pushing back against China, and that this is creating a dynamic which deliberately or accidentally may tip the region eventually into conflict. And so having a meeting with your opposite number is in a sense the minimum that the region would like to see. And so I think we'll have to see how this pans out during the weekend itself. But I think that at least creates some countervailing pressure where both sides might like to to be seen to make an effort towards dialogue, even in a broader context in which there is very little communication and little trust between the two sides. And in fact, that actually makes the meeting at the Shangri-La Dialogue all the more important because the US and Chinese defense ministers respectively only ever really meet with one another twice a year in any case. One of those meetings happens at the Shangri-La Dialogue. So if if they don't meet then, then that's quite a loss to the bilateral diplomatic calendar. Indeed. And of course, this is Chinese Defense Minister Li Shangfu's first Shangri-La Dialogue in his new role. So it'll be interesting, of course, to see what he picks up on in his speech and also what, of course, the messaging, not just to the region and to the United States will be in his speech, but to audiences back home as well, who will be watching this very closely. Can you give us a sense of the diversity of the other delegates at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue? Obviously, there's US-China, but there's a range of other countries who are participating as well, not just from within the region, but also from beyond. Yeah, so I'll, I mean, I will turn the microphone over to, to Lynn, Aaron, and Ben, who in their own ways all know this region better than I do. But the Shangri-La Dialogue brings together a range of ministers. So we're in Southeast Asia. So the defense ministers of almost all of the Southeast Asian countries come. Then you have the, the wider Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific, as some call it. And so typically you have ministers from Japan, Australia, the Republic of Korea. Uh, then you have a whole swathe of Europeans. Ben will probably talk about that in a minute and from the larger European countries down to some of the middle and smaller powers. And then you have a smattering of others as well. So we will tend to have some from the Pacific Islands in this part of the world, from South Asia, from the Middle East, uh, where we as the IISS have a sister dialogue in Manama, which happens in November. And and we try and make sure that the Middle East is well represented. It's quite a cosmopolitan gathering uh, with a core of Asian participants, but also drawing in countries for whom the, the Asia Pacific is strategically significant for whatever reason. And last question for you before we do move on to Lynn, Aaron, and Ben. We've had some quite frank statements made at previous Shangri-La dialogues during the plenary sessions by various ministers, particularly during the question and answer sessions. How much of a topic do you think Taiwan is going to be this year? 
I think Taiwan will be a big focus, even more so perhaps than last year. So last year's speech, particularly the speech from the previous Chinese defense minister, Wei Fenghe, it didn't break new ground in terms of China's uh, statement or position on Taiwan, but it was quite a forthright, some would say fiery restatement of the red lines that China perceives. I mean, he was very frank in terms of what China felt to be its position and the risks involved. And so I would anticipate that China will reiterate those red lines that the United States will talk about this. And if you think about the wider context here, the, the really big event between this Shangri-La dialogue and the last was Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and then the Chinese response to that, the, the quasi-blockade and other kind of military activities which China undertook, and then a, a kind of reprise of that which followed President Tsai's visit to the United States last month. In a sense, while Taiwan is always a major flashpoint around the region, you know, there are others, the Korean Peninsula, the India-China border, Border, Myanmar, you know, there are various areas that the IISS focuses on. But I think it would be fair to say that Taiwan will be a more prominent focus this year because simply it's been more prominent over the last year. Lynn, moving on to you, speaking of potential flashpoints and regional tensions, I mean, what have notable developments been in the South China Sea in terms of security in the past year? And how do you expect them to be discussed in this year's dialogue? I think there have been several notable events in the past year. First, there have been accusations that China has built on unoccupied reefs in the South China Sea. This is significant because if these reports are true, these would be the first known instances of China actually building on features it didn't already occupy. Second, there's been an increased Chinese Coast Guard presence in disputed areas of the South China Sea. This has led to dangerous skirmishes and near collisions between Chinese Coast Guard and Philippines, Vietnamese and Malaysian naval and law enforcement vessels. For instance, I think um, one event that hit the international media was the Philippines accusing China of aiming a military-grade laser at Philippines Coast Guard vessels and crossing dangerously close to the Philippines Coast Guard vessels, putting the Philippine crew in danger. And finally, of course, China continues to object to assertions of passage and freedoms of the seas by the United States and other naval powers in the South China Sea. And of course, this raises dangers of incidents at sea occurring and the risk of escalation beyond that. As for whether and how this will be discussed at the Shangri-La Dialogue, I think it's safe to say that it will be discussed at the Shangri-La Dialogue, and it's likely to be a strong bone of contention between the US, Southeast Asian countries, as well as middle powers on the one hand, and China on the other hand. The South China Sea, I think, is one issue on which there is a general consensus that uh, China's actions are unlawful and highly problematic. We're likely to see it discussed simply because it's one of the main flashpoints of the United States-China relationship, but it's also clearly important to many Southeast Asian countries who rely on the fish and oil and gas rights in the South China Sea. So in the past year, we've seen Indonesia, Vietnam and Malaysia all seeking to develop oil and gas blocks. The Philippines in particular actually needs its oil and gas resources greatly. It's actually adhered to a previous decision not to develop the oil and gas in terms of whether Southeast Asian countries will call out China for its behavior in the South China Sea, we've seen in the past that Vietnam tends to be the most vocal in calling out encroachments in the South China Sea. I believe last year, neither the Indonesian nor Malaysian defense ministers actually mentioned issues relating to the South China Sea. 
So we'll have to see whether Vietnam attends number one, and if it attends, whether or not it's going to call out Chinese behavior there. But apart from Southeast Asian countries, I think we're also going to see middle powers, you know, European powers, for instance, raise the dispute as well. They're concerned about the implications for open waterways and the rule of law should any dispute arise there. Is the region any closer, do you think, to building on conflict resolution mechanisms with regards to tensions in the South China Sea? And also, what about the code of conduct between China and ASEAN? Is there any sense of developments in in that space? In terms of the South China Sea dispute, I don't think we can expect to see conflict resolution mechanisms arise. I think the best we can hope for is conflict management mechanisms And you mentioned this code of conduct. We've seen baby stats, I suppose, in terms of the code of conduct. So in February this year, Indonesian and Chinese officials declared that negotiations on a code of conduct for the South China Sea will be intensified this year. And in March, I believe, ASEAN and China held meetings discussing the code of conduct. Beyond these baby steps, however, I see very little reason for optimism that a code of conduct which has really been elusive since 2002, will be reached this year. Many of the sticking points that have existed in the past, I think, continue to be sticking points. So we have uh, the issue about the scope of application of any such code. So where should it apply to in the South China Sea? Uh, We have disputes over approaches to conflict management. Should it be about the prohibition of controversial activities? Or should we content ourselves with confidence building? There are also disputes over dispute settlement mechanisms. Should the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea dispute mechanisms apply to any such code? Or should it be about bilateral negotiations or mediation even? And finally, whether or not the code of conduct should be legally binding or not. I think these are all sticking points in terms of concluding code of conduct. But I think if I were China, I would be taking a step back to rethink my approach towards the South China Sea. In an era of great power competition, I think China's main fight is with the United States and Beijing should be seeking not only to conclude a code of conduct with ASEAN countries, but also to resolve competing maritime claims with its neighbours. An international tribunal has already categorically ruled that there is no legal basis for China to claim historic rights to resources within the sea areas falling within the nine-dash line, nor can China claim an exclusive economic zone from features or groups of features in the Spratlys. So I think if China is able to settle its quarrels with its neighbours, or at least set them aside, it puts it in better stead vis-à-vis the United States. So we see the Philippines' decision to provide the US with four additional military facilities, including in locations close to Taiwan. That was arguably prompted by China's actions in the South China Sea. And we also see Manila seeking to enhance its security ties with close US allies and partners, including Japan. China's actions in the South China Sea, more than anything else, hurt its positioning vis-a-vis the United States. Do you think that China's global security initiative offers any ways forward for China's engagement on security issues in Southeast Asia? And how do Southeast Asians look at that? I don't think the Global Security Initiative has made much of a splash in terms of Southeast Asian consciousness. And I think ultimately it will be about China's actions, not its words and rhetoric that matters to Southeast Asians. So when you're talking about, you know, Southeast Asian oil and gas resources and fishing rights that they need for development and they need for the fishermen, they will be looking for China to walk the talk.
Thanks, Lynn. Erin, moving on to you, we've just passed the second anniversary of the coup d'etat in Myanmar in February this year. How are the countries which are coming to the dialogue dealing with this conflict? Thanks, Maya. I think, you know, if you take a step back, when we were talking two years ago after the coup d'etat, you know, this was really at that time a diplomatic crisis. Protests had been suppressed for the most part, but it hadn't devolved into a full-scale conflict like it is right now. And so the situation inside Myanmar has deteriorated really rapidly over the last year and a half. And although it's impossible to know how many fatalities on either side, we have tracked over 20,000 armed engagements since the coup d'etat. And so this is now what some are calling a civil war. On the one side, the State Administration Council, which is what the junta calls itself, which is mostly comprised of senior military leaders led by Senior General Min Aung Hlaing. And then on the other side, you have the National Unity Government, which is mostly made up of legislators who are elected in the free and fair November 2020 election. They are supported by a number of People's Defense Forces, PDFs, who are operating in central Myanmar. And this is the first time since shortly after Myanmar's independence as Burma in 1949 that you had serious violence against uh, challenging the authority of the central government in those parts of Myanmar. There's always been conflict along the peripheries, but this is really unprecedented conflict in what we call the dry zone in the arid part of central Myanmar. And so it's devolved from something that was a diplomatic crisis to really an all-out conflict accompanied by a diplomatic crisis. And the way that countries are approaching that crisis varies uh, greatly. And part of that is because they don't really agree on what's happening inside Myanmar. Um, If you speak to India or China or Thailand, they have this kind of view that um, the junta is winning and it's just a matter of time before they're able to suppress opposition to the coup. And that the way out of this is through a kind of junta uh, convened election. On the other side, you have democratic countries, European countries, and actually most of the maritime countries in Southeast Asia, which don't see any end to the conflict in sight and have been putting a lot of pressure on the junta to come to the table and begin peace talks uh, with national unity government, or at the very least with ethnic armed organizations that are aligned with it. So very different approaches based on very different perspectives about what's happening inside Myanmar. And aside from Myanmar, what other issues related to Southeast Asian security do you think are likely to come up in either the plenary or the special sessions this year? I mean, there's been elections in Thailand, Indonesia's chairing ASEAN this year. What else do you think will be discussed? It's been an interesting chairmanship year for Indonesia. The sort of conventional wisdom is that there are good chairs and bad chairs in ASEAN, and that a country like Cambodia, which is closer to China and has less capacity, is generally not going to be a very strong chair. And indeed, in 2012, they notoriously broke consensus with the rest of ASEAN over debates on the South China Sea, over Chinese actions in the South China Sea. That was considered a a very bad chairmanship for Cambodia. But last year's Cambodian chairmanship has been given really strong reviews, even by the United States, which it really sort of changed their perspective of where Cambodia sits within the region in terms of proximity to China versus uh, proximity to other outside powers. And Indonesia is also confounding expectations in the other direction. And so Indonesia is usually considered to be a very strong chair. They're meant to be the primus inter Paris within ASEAN. Uh, They have really a sort of unlimited capacity Uh, and they tend to be more in the middle of ASEAN. They're really disappointing in many ways. And they've been criticized for bringing forward their summit by three months, usually the second summit, ASEAN summit of the year is in November. So there's a kind of back half of the year in which there will be very little activity, mostly because Indonesia is going into presidential elections next year, and it didn't want to host the summit that close to its presidential elections. 
it doesn't seem to be quite as organized as Cambodia was last year. And its reputation for being more in the middle of ASEAN is really been met with some disappointment on the part of the United States and some of its partners, which are, have been very frustrated by Indonesian positions on various issues, including Myanmar so far this year. And so we'll be convening a special session at the dialogue on ASEAN centrality uh, and challenges to ASEAN centrality. And in particular, I think, you know, we will be looking at the Quad, which many countries in the region feel is a challenge to ASEAN because no ASEAN member states are part of the Quad. And of course, uh, the Quad, through things like its vaccine initiative and its attempt to provide public goods in Southeast Asia, it is challenging uh, ASEAN centrality in, in various ways. And so I imagine that that will be a, a big topic of discussion in that special session. James already discussed U.S.-China dynamics, and Lynn commented on how the region looks at China with regards to the South China Sea. We also, as James mentioned, have a number of other regional and extra-regional participants at the dialogue at ministerial level. What do you think Southeast Asia is looking for from the U.S., Japan, or Europe in 2023? And I know that's a very broad question with regards to Southeast Asia, but there's lots of dynamics happening in the region at the moment, both with regards to regional actors and extra-regional actors. And I just wondered whether you could give a flavor of that dynamic. The most interesting dynamic is the way that Southeast Asian states that previously appeared as though they might be kind of incipient balancers against China's rise, the Philippines, Vietnam, Singapore, and occasionally Indonesia. Ten years ago, we would have spoken them as, you know, a, a balancing coalition against China that the U.S. and its allies might be able to put together within Southeast Asia. Really, that's kind of maritime coalition. And what I think is most interesting about the last 10 years is the way that that coalition has really fallen apart. And so the Philippines is very rapidly under President Marcos moving to do more with the United States, but they're very much alone. And so with Vietnam uh, having gone through a series of purges um, that were sort of politically motivated and appear to have had the effect of aligning it more closely with China earlier this year, to Singapore really becoming very vocal in telling the United States that it needs to, uh, about its unhappiness with various U.S. policies recently regarding tech competition uh, and over Taiwan, and Indonesia to really sort of reasserting its non-alignment. We don't see that kind of coalition coming together in Southeast Asia anymore. And so uh, that's really the change. And I think it's only recently really dawned upon the Biden administration in Washington that they have this problem. They were still working on the old model of the idea that they could put together this balancing coalition. And it's only recently occurred to them that they may have lost that opportunity, mostly because they, they didn't really adjust very quickly. And the narrative in Southeast Asia really got away from them, particularly over Taiwan, where the U.S. is actually seen as the more provocative party now in Southeast Asia, which is striking because, of course, it's not the U.S., that is uh, sending missiles into the Taiwan Strait. But it's something that the U.S., if they want to get back in the game in Southeast Asia, has to address. They have to be able to explain how what they're doing is really deterrent and not escalatory. And they haven't been able to do that so far. And I think, in fact, Secretary Austin's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue last year was a real example of their inability to do that. So uh, I'd be looking this year in Secretary Austin's speech, and I think most Southeast Asian states will be looking for new language that tries to demonstrate that really their intent is, and I think this is sincere, to be deterrent as opposed to escalatory. 
Fascinating. Well, moving on to extra-regional countries and powers, then Ben sitting in Berlin at the moment. A key message from last year's Shangri-La Dialogue was that the security of the Indo-Pacific and Euro-Atlantic regions are inextricably linked. We're now in the second year of the war in Ukraine. How do European countries currently view the Indo-Pacific and vice versa? Well, thanks, Maya. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, more than one year into the war, that view has been reinforced uh, in Europe, um, in many European countries, um, including in, in those who have been previously a bit more skeptical about this argument that you know the two countries are increasingly strategically um, connected, if not increasingly also operationally, and we might have to see how that develops in the future. And that includes important countries such as Germany and um, the Scandinavian countries. Um, I really believe that China's lack of putting real pressure on Russia to end the war, signs and indications of ever closer Sino-Russian strategic cooperation, and of course the Taiwan um, issue, all of those factors have firmly um, led to you know, uh, reassessments uh, in Europe uh, and to the idea that, look, the Indo-Pacific, what happens in the Indo-Pacific in terms of security is just too important to ignore. Um, you might agree with me that, um, you know, never in, in, in our lifetime have we seen um, Taiwan being so closely watched um, and discussed uh, in European capitals, including that key question of what to do in case of a conflict. Um, previously, the firm assumption was um, we're staying out of this. Um, I think now um, the realization is we can't. European countries can't stay out of this conflict. And the question is then what to do about it. I think the fact that we have that very, very strong presence, as James alluded uh, to at the beginning of European defense ministers um, uh, at this year's Shangri-La is a testament to the fact that they all recognize how important this, this region is. And on top of that, we have you know the EU High Representative Joseph Borrell speaking. Um, so we're really looking forward to hearing from the UK, France, Germany, Netherlands, but also Sweden and the Ukraine, their respective defense ministers of how they see it. But I would expect them to confirm that from their perspective, those two theaters are now firmly strategically linked. You've mentioned a whole host of countries from Europe that are attending the Shangri-La Dialogue this year. And we've also heard various messages from capitals of those countries that don't always seem to align when it comes to discussions like Taiwan and the potential of conflict and the role of Europe potentially in uh, responding to a conflict or helping to deter a conflict like a Taiwan contingency. Do you think Europe has graduated from its learning curve of how to think about the Indo-Pacific, how to talk about the Indo-Pacific? I know that Lynn has written an excellent article on survival on this topic. In the past few years, there have been discussions uh, of how to frame Europe's relationship with the Indo-Pacific. We've graduated in the UK, for example, of looking at this in terms of autocracies versus democracies. But by and large, there doesn't seem to always be as much alignment within Europe when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, and certainly not when it comes to Taiwan or China. As always, with, with Europe, it's probably sort of a yes and a no. Um, at the same time. Uh, I mean, Europe is not one coherent bunch. Europe, um, just like in the Indo-Pacific, consists of many different countries with many different interests. I think you can see this uh, in regards to, to the question that you just raised. I mean, I think on the yes side, I think it's fair to say that several um, European powers have refined and adjusted their Indo-Pacific assessments 
they have refined and adjusted their respective Indo-Pacific strategy. The language on China um, has clearly hardened across uh, many European countries without at the same time, you know, falling into this black and white um, uh, dichotomy. Um, De-risking, I think, has now been firmly um, accepted um, as, as a concept in Europe. Uh, we'll have to see about the implementation. But the first step is to recognize that you have to do something about it, and then you have to think about what exactly you are going to do about this. I think we also have, uh, on the positive side, now a firm um, realization amongst several European countries that the need for persistent defense engagement uh, in the region. So the UK just announced another you know, carrier strike deployment for 2025. The Germans um, will probably announce a few more things at, at the Shangri-La Dialogue after, you know, sending the frigate Bayern, uh, participating in air exercises in Australia. The German army for the first time will participate in an Australian land uh, exercise um, uh, in August, uh, July. We are looking forward to hearing from the Dutch, you know, how their deployment looks for 2024. And, you know, the fact that Sweden is also speaking um, uh, is interesting because while we might not want to uh, expect Sweden to announce the deployment of a Swedish frigate, I think it will be interesting to see um, what, what, what Sweden's offer, so to say, will be uh, in terms of defense engagement. So there are things happening on the positive side. On the negative side, as you said, of course, the message is still inconsistent. I mean, we had that train wreck of a visit of, of, of French President uh, Macron together you know, with uh, Ursula von der Leyen, where, um, as you recall, uh, Macron afterwards gave that interview where he said, you know, from, you know, Europe should not make regional conflicts, i.e. Taiwan its own, uh, needs to invest more in strategic uh, autonomy and reduce dependency on the United States. And that really didn't go down well uh, in the region, but also not uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, including in Germany. And Borrell then came out saying, you know, the EU should consider sending ships uh, even uh, to the Taiwan Straits. Um, that, of course, raises immediate questions about, you know, uh, limited resources. So who else than those that I already mentioned could send ships? Uh, would they put them under EU command? We haven't seen any such operation um, taking place in the, in, in the Pacific. And to Burrell, probably the question will be raised. Um, so is that really serious? And then and, and which ship uh, and the like? So yes, um, there are still different interested interests, different priorities. I think at SLD, um, when it comes to the European contributions, we need to look out for, will there continue to be a fragmented or a more joint European approach uh, to this in terms of the messaging? Um, and will there be more concrete announcement of act about active um, uh, participation? I don't hold my breath, but um, I think it's an opportunity there. You've already mentioned Australia. This year's keynote speech will be given by Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, whose government has in recent months sought to repair its relationship somewhat with China, while at the same time also enhancing its role in regional security and defence through efforts like AUKUS. What do you expect from the keynote speech? I think we should start from the premise that, that in Australia there is now sort of a firm realism about, about China which is on the one hand, the understanding that, you know, China is foremost a strategic competitor um, and that in terms of security, Australia is firmly uh, aligned and even closer aligned than ever 
um, with the United States and other crucial partners uh, such as Japan. But of course, that doesn't mean that you can't trade with China. That doesn't mean that you um, can't repair some of those strains uh, in other areas of, of Australia's um, foreign policy. So I think with that in mind, Albanese is probably going to put some messages forward. For me, at least four come to mind. First, I think he will say something along the lines that great power rivalry in the Indo-Pacific, as James has said, is increasing and that the risk of conflict um, has never been higher. Um, he will then probably also say that, as other Australian governments have said, you know, that might is right, cannot be the basis for regional um, um, security. We will have to see how directly he mentions uh, China. Usually um, Australian, you know, prime ministers are not shying away uh, from that. Um, it will be interesting to see what he will say on Taiwan. I would well expect him to have a line in there about uh, Taiwan and the need to be for the conflict to be resolved peacefully. Thirdly, I think that he will underscore that Australia seeks to be an active and reliable security partner, particularly in Southeast Asia, uh, the Pacific, but also the broader region. And fourthly, I think he will say something along the lines that Australia takes its defense obligations very seriously. And I think he will strongly make the point that AUKUS, from the perspective of Canberra, will actually contribute to regional stability rather than undermine it. So I think these are some of the key messages that I expect him to put forward. I have a question for all of you. There are, of course, a whole host of other topics and issues that will likely be raised either in discussions or in plenary presentations and speeches throughout the Shangri-La Dialogue. And this is your opportunity to give listeners a sense of what you'll be watching out for with regards to your respective areas of focus. I'm going to go in reverse order. So, Ben, what's something else that you're going to be watching out for? What I will be watching out for is particularly the Philippines and how the Philippines um, is positioning uh, or repositioning uh, uh, itself in defense terms. I mean, as Aaron has said, um, you know, the Philippines has, has been moving um, at quite a high speed in, in an interesting uh, direction. And in that context, I also will be watching if, for instance, Albanese mentions the Philippines because there have been some significant uptick in Australian engagement, defense engagement uh, with the Philippines as well, and how Japan comes in because it was not just the United States who jumped on the, the regime change, so to speak, but also Japan. That will be one of the things that I will be listening quite carefully to. Thanks, Ben. Aaron. Thanks, Maya. I would take the other end of Southeast Asia there from Ben. I think I'll be watching for the same things that Ben was watching for with regard to the Philippines. But if we, we sort of take the old framework for Southeast Asia and think about Cambodia as the other end of that spectrum, there was an interesting opportunity last year, which I think delegates didn't really seize to ask the Cambodian defense minister about developments at Reem Naval Base, which, of course, the United States uh, has alleged uh, is being developed as facility for the sole use of the Chinese PLAN. I would wonder if delegates would be interested in asking him about those developments again this year. There isn't that much that's gone on over the past year. One of the most interesting things to me is that developments at Reem always seem to progress very slowly, which suggests that perhaps either the Cambodians are really playing a, a hard bargain with the Chinese and the development over that base um, and slow playing things in order to get as much as possible out of China for whatever agreement they may have struck, or 
that uh, things are not quite as have been alleged in the Wall Street Journal and other places. And so um, exploring that a little bit further and whether or not Cambodia would be willing to put limits on Chinese use of that base in a public forum like the dialogue would be very interesting. Excellent. Lynn. Well, on the South China Sea, I'll be watching to see if Southeast Asian claimant states highlight China's unlawful and coercive actions in their speeches, or whether they refrain from mentioning these at all. I'll also be watching to see if other states make strong statements on how the South China Sea impacts all countries with an interest in the rule of law, including the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. I think more broadly, we mentioned earlier the inextricable linkages between the Euro-Atlantic and Indo-Pacific regions. I'll be looking to see the extent to which Asian countries buy into these, this message and perhaps even underscore it. There has been for several years now a clear sense in many European capitals that security developments in the Indo-Pacific have implications for Europe, not least because of their impact on the international rule of law. Now, that sense of interconnectedness between the two regions has been less than forthcoming in Asia. With the exception of Japan, Singapore and South Korea, perhaps, most Asian countries see the Ukraine war as having implications for food and oil prices, but little else. This was a point that particularly struck me about the speeches of several defense ministers from the region at the Shangri-La dialogue last year. So I'll be watching very closely to see if there's been a change since then. Thanks, Lynn. And last but not least, James, what will you be watching out for in addition to running around and being busy talking to delegations and running the show? I'm going to be watching for the appearance of nuclear policy in discussions. It's been a topic that is really coming to greater prominence in this region. Um, We highlighted it uh, in our Sherpa meeting for the Shangri-La Dialogue, which happened uh, in January. We, we do that in the run-in for senior officials. And we have a special session on the nuclear dimensions of regional security. For those who don't know the dialogue that well, in addition to the plenaries where the ministers give the big speeches, we have half a dozen of these special sessions on topics like ASEAN, and in this case on nuclear security. If you um, sort of pull the pieces together, it's quite an alarming development in the region. The recent G7 meeting in Hiroshima had a G7 attempt to to try and come up with some new guidelines and principles on nuclear dimensions of regional security. You have the evergreen problem of the Korean Peninsula and the uh, management of the DPRK. Outside of our region, you have Iran and the collapse of the JCPOA agreement. But you also have some other elements which are feeding into this. China is expanding very rapidly its arsenal of strategic weapons. Russia has been uh, saber-rattling in terms of its threshold for the use of nuclear weapons in ways that has been noticed around the region. You have a very dynamic and unstable nuclear balance in the region, given you have six nuclear powers, including India and Pakistan and India and China, which are all interacting with one another. And then in a completely different way, not so much in terms of nuclear weapons, but nuclear technologies, you have the AUKUS agreement which Ben, um, along with other of our colleagues, has written interestingly about over over recent times. So if you sort of draw all of that together, there's actually an awful lot going on in the the nuclear field in the Asia-Pacific region, much more so than would have been true a couple of years ago. And I think that's an area that we at the Institute, um, as part of a new research program that we have based in Singapore, are going to be taking a good hard look at, in addition to work that's being done by Ben and his colleagues in Berlin. 
Excellent. Thank you. Well, thanks, James, Lynn, Aaron, and Ben for joining me today. We'll keep an eye out for you during the dialogue, of course, especially during the Q&A sessions and the special sessions, and look forward to your analysis coming out of the dialogue afterwards. That's all we have time for today, unfortunately. So thank you, James, Lynn, Aaron, and Ben for sharing your thoughts. And we look forward to seeing more of your analysis during the course of the dialogue. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more in-depth analysis, visit the IISS website and follow the IISS on Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll find more information about the dialogue in our show notes, including links where you can follow the Shangri-La dialogue as it happens from 2 to 4 June. If you can't join us online or in person in Singapore for the dialogue, we've got you covered as well. We'll be back with another episode of Sound Strategic right after the dialogue with more of our in-house experts to debrief you on everything that you might have missed. In the meantime, please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. Thank you and see you next time.